common, which I, th- I thought you'd be interested in, Dave, which is, uh, by this point, having grown a considerable beard, he thought it was protection so long as he looked like a peasant. Is that because I've got a peasant farmer's beard? Yes, you have a very <laughs> strong peasant farmer's beard. Uh, quite, yeah. quite right. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this uh, latest episode of For You, The War Is Over, a podcast all about uh, Second World War, Prisoner War escapes. Uh, who are we looking at today, Dave? Um, first of all, I just wanted to say this is a podcast that is um, hosted by myself, Dave, who is a tech geek, and yourself? Uh, Dave, the history nerd. Uh, excellent. Combo of Daves. Uh, today we are looking at a gentleman called Captain Anthony Donathorn Taylor, which... We are sticking with the tradition of really strong names. Um, this is how we are choosing to pick the people. Not really, but... Um, this but, is, but there is definitely a theme yeah. emerging here. Uh, it's Very all, strong name. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, a- a- Anthony Donathorn Taylor, he was age 30 uh, at the time of his escape, and he was an adjutant in the Hussars, who are a cavalry regiment right, in I was the army. Ask, yeah. So um, traditionally that would be horseback, but of course in this uh, mechanical day and age, that is tanks. Right. Um, so yeah, so he, he was uh, captured on the 18th of May 1940, uh, which is only eight days after the what is known as the end of the phony war. Um, so 10th of May is... It's kind of one of those days in which everything in history happened. So uh, okay. it's kind of like the 5th of November 1955 in Back to the Future. Right, okay. Um, the day where all the timelines merge. Exactly, yes. yeah. It's kind of it's one of those days where everything happened. So it's the day that Hitler invaded the Low Countries, uh, um, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, as part of the attack on... Well, those three countries, but also France, in his effort to get through the uh, get round to the Maginot Line, right? Uh, so that it was which uh, signified the end of the phony war, um, because from fourth of September until tenth of May, so around about six months, six months, seven eight months, yeah, about that. Um, so for around about seven, eight months or so, um, from the start of the war until the invasion of the Low Countries, there had been what was the phony war, what was known as the phony war anyway, whereby no actual fighting really took place, it's just we were technically at war. Okay. Um, and so the 10th of May signified the end of that. It was also the day that um, Churchill took over right. as Prime Minister, replaced ah. Neville Chamberlain. Uh, there had been an invasion of Norway prior to this, which had signified the end of uh, Chamberlain's tenure as Prime Minister, um, despite it actually, ironically, being more Churchill's fault than Chamberlain's, but we, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the, the great tides of time have washed over that particular it. technicality. Yeah, history, uh, history forgets things sometimes. It, it does a little bit, and that's why we are here to remember history. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, so yes, uh, so the 18th of May 1940 is a very, very early capture and escape and in actual fact he was the fourth escape of the entire war Um, wow that's incredible so he we are we are looking at some very early escapes yeah um and actual fact i wanted to i wanted to go back and look at some early escapes Mm -hmm. um because um the the early stuff sort of the the post phony war 
post Dunkirk, which kind of comes a little bit later in uh, June, uh, end of May into June. Yeah. Um, the escapes that kind of took place in 1940 were very different from the escapes that took place throughout the entirety of the war, mm-hmm. and uh, and significantly so, and and but also were a significant percentage of the escapes that took place the entirety of the war. So in actual fact, in, in of all the escapes that took place throughout the war, over 40% took place in those six months. Really? Between May and December of 1940, so six, seven months. Wow, that's that's... You wouldn't believe. I wouldn't know that. Thinking back of of what I know of of escapes, you'd think they would sort of be more spread evenly throughout the whole period. You would think so, and you would assume so. And in, and in many ways, that is the assumption. Um, however, we do know that uh, at least over forty percent took place uh, in in that very short space of time. Actually, is is that because potentially? The defence of of the borders of camps and things like that got better, got more sophisticated, or partly, yep, absolutely. Um, so it was partly because as the camp system got established, as prisoners were taken into those camps, and the security around those camps uh, became more and more sophisticated, um, with uh, you know barbed wire, double barbed wire, guards, watchtowers, dogs, yeah, microphones for picking up tunneling. Um, ferrets, you know, <laughs> um, that still blows my mind. Just <laughs> ferrets, pet, you know, ferrets used for that. Um, so the, the, it became a very sophisticated system in some of the really high security places. The ratio of guards to prisoners was not quite one to one, but actually not a million miles off it. That's a lot of, again, I would expect there to be far fewer guards than that. That's a lot of guards, yeah. So, you know, it, it became more and more difficult as the war went on wow. to actually enact an escape, which is why often the later escapes are so much more sophisticated. But the early escapes, it, um, particularly after Dunkirk, when a large number of servicemen were left behind in France. Now, in many ways, Dunkirk was a success. We got over, I think it was around 300,000 servicemen evacuated from mainland Europe back to the UK. Yeah, And as I say, it was certainly portrayed as a success and in many ways it was but that didn't mean that there weren't still thousands if not hundreds of thousands uh, certainly tens of thousands of allied soldiers that were left behind right uh, some to defend the lines that were left behind while the evacuation was take place to enable the evacuation and others because they'd already been overtaken by uh, german forces yeah and so they were kind of left to make their way either into the prison system or to try and get out try and get back themselves um which might sound brutally harsh but it's kind of you know time of war you have to play the odds i'd say i guess it's the greater good at that point (laughs) a little bit you know they they could get as many as they could off but eventually they had to call it a day and accept that the forces were overrun um probably gutting if you're that last person at the cutoff point though Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the person that just kind of waves as the last little boat yeah. uh, <laughs> disappears over the horizon. I'll wait for the next one. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh, oh okay. Th- there's one more, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, and as I say, h- h- tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, were captured in the immediate aftermath of Dunkirk mm-hmm. as the German forces occupied France. Yeah, and this meant that there were the, you know, they didn't have the camp system set up. Uh, the assumption at this stage was that the uh, fighting in France would be more like the wor- First World War, where right. not quite static, but 
the assumption was that it wouldn't be over in six weeks. Okay. Uh, which, of course, it ended up being. And so there were a lot of prisoners taken, prisoners that the Germans were not ready for. Right. And in essence, you had massive columns of prisoners of war being marched through occupied Europe uh, during the early stages of the war throughout 1940. And so the opportunity to escape was actually quite high because if you're in a four or five kilometre long column and you've got maybe 20 soldiers uh, guarding that column, wasn't that hard to just kind of disappear off yeah, in, into a hedgerow? Yeah, probably a good opportunity to slip out somewhere and yeah. duck and hide. And so because of that, we have a high percentage of escapes taking place at a really early stage in the war. Right. Because the opportunity was higher, the sophistication wasn't there, and the guard system and the preparation on the German side certainly wasn't there. Right, okay. Um, and so that's why I kind of wanted to go back and look at some of the earlier uh, escapes yeah. and kind of almost set up from the start. And as I say, Taylor was the fourth escape that took place in the entirety of the war that got back yeah um that successfully got back and so um he also has a really interesting story uh, to tell as we say uh, with all of these you know these are adventure stories mm-hmm. they're just unlike treasure island the, these ones are true um or <laughs> you don't Ro- know treasure island's not true well it might be or, or robinson crusoe you <laughs> yeah. know based on true stories but you get my point yeah you know, these are adventure stories that are true stories and so you know it, all all escapes are awesome yeah uh, all escapes are exciting and interesting <laughs> uh if you ask me i thought he was a really good exemplar of some of these early escapes that, and so i thought we'd have a look at this guy nice that sounds amazing shall we have a look at uh, a little bit more detail about his uh, of his escape yes absolutely um so he he was as, as i said earlier he was captured on the 18th of may 1940 um he 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 was actually uh, captured uh, because he crashed his tank. Uh, How do you crash a tank? Uh, Surely they're designed to go through basically everything. Through yes, turning sharp corners, not so much. And from what I can tell, he basically tried to take a sharp corner really quickly in his tank and rolled it. Which also seems like a very impressive feat because they've got to have a low center of gravity. Those you would things. think so, yeah. <laughs> um, and so he was basically immediately surrounded and captured near what was then a lost, but is now Alst. Okay. And so, yes, he was captured almost immediately. But what I find interesting about this is that um, he's immediately thinking of escape from yeah. the start. You know, he's quite openly saying, you know, there was um, uh, 12 officers to two guards. So it was a six to one ratio of allied soldiers to german he's already thinking guards. about his odds he's already thinking about his odds but more than that he actually uh, quite explicitly states that he felt like doing in the guard you know <laughs> just, just I, I don't know what he had planned but can you know get the knuckle dusters out and taking one of them out and just making a run for it um and so yeah he as i say he quite openly uh, speaks about um, feeling like doing in the guard um however he he thought better of that because there was a river to cross and uh yeah so he was taken prisoner and marched off to a nearby uh nearby town i was kept in a prison near there uh he seems to have kind of flitted around sort of belgium for yeah a little while uh he ultimately ended up in brussels and even you know they would be gathering additional prisoners as they're going yeah. along but even then there was still only eight guards uh, you know, the escort consisted of four mounted men and four cyclists. So they weren't exactly overrun with protection, shall no, we say. No, it seems, I mean, 
I mean, it's part of what you just mentioned, I guess, with the, with the fact that it's so early. But it seems if I if I were trying to keep a bunch of prisoners that I just caught in check, I wouldn't just have eight men guarding them. No, but I think I, th- I think we'll probably touch upon the reasons why that probably will be a little bit later. Um, okay, I've, I've got a little note <laughs> for for why this might be. And so yeah, but what what's interesting is. Um, you know, as they were being paraded down Brussels, which had evidently just been uh, conquered by the Germans, um, they were even then receiving a very good reception from the Belgians, being given food, cigarettes, that sort of thing. I, I read this in you know, I read this in the report, and I I didn't understand why they were given food and cigarettes, and he says which the Germans did just not seem to mind. I suppose at this stage, the uh, extensive animosity that we kind of associate between the German occupation and those who were occupied had not yet fully developed. I'm not saying that the Belgians were thrilled to have them there or equally that the Germans weren't delighted to be there. Yeah. But I think not enough had taken place yet <laughs> for extensive belligerence to exist in the way that we kind of associate with 43, 44. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the establish- you know, there'd be no time for an establishment of a resistance, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Right, okay. And so there weren't oppressive measures taken by the Germans in response to this sort of thing, whereas if this, if this had happened a year later, it almost certainly would have led to, you know, being lined up against the wall. <laughs> yeah. And-, and the inevitable happening. Yeah, it's just the fact that the, the guards were just, people were giving these things to the prisoners and the guards were just like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, I suppose if you're also trying to, you know, march people long distances across Belgium, um, you want as easy as ride as possible, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So they want to make sure they've got the energy to do it. Yeah, and they were, you know, they were they were escorting them all over the place, from what I can tell. Um, you know, going going on to Termond, um, where they were kept in cavalry barracks, and from there they were taken to a place called what I think is Santronk. I think that's how it's pronounced. However, when I googled Santronk, nothing came up. It came <laughs> up as Santrond. Oh, okay. And from there, it had a Belgian name, which was Sint Truden. And again, apologies for any absolute butchering of the Belgian language. <laughs> I'm sure it's a delightful language, but um, I don't speak it, yeah, unfortunately. Well, we don't know so, it. so apologies to anyone uh, for our horrendous pronunciation. Um, and so it, it does say in the report Santronk. Yeah. So for the purposes of consistency rather than accuracy, we will continue to refer to it as Santronk. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, from Termond onwards, they were actually, um, you know, you can really see the pickup in numbers of, uh, of soldiers that have been captured. And, you know, by this point, there's 280 British and over 3,000 Belgians in, in their column. So we're talking about, such large numbers. Yeah, enormous numbers. And even with Prussian soldiers forming the guard, and Prussian soldiers were very famed for being exceptional soldiers. Yeah. Even with them forming the guard, they can't, you know, this this column must have been kilometers long. And so there's just no way that they could have kept tabs on the entirety of the column. No, at the same not time. at all. And so when they got to about two kilometers east of Saint-Tronc, uh, he basically saw a chance, slipped out of the column, disappeared off into the hedgerows. And why not, in some ways? Yeah. Um, you know, he, he saw his chance, he went for it. And I, I wonder in a situation like that, and this is, I don't think there's anything we can prove or disprove, but imagine being, you're, you're the guy next to him in the column, and you've just seen him dart off and managed to successfully slip between the guards. What's your thought process there? Do you just sort of 
kind of chance it <laughs> as well or just carry on or you're a tattletale or so, some some chanced it yeah some went for it and then others i think just kind of i just I, I don't know what i would do if it was me i'd just be like hey what Mm, in some ways you've gone you're better to be the first person than the second one the first person surprises the guards the second person gets the bullet that's what i mean (laughs) (laughs) so mm, tempting (laughs) Um, and so yeah he disappeared off into a hedgerow and lay there for the rest of the day uh, which you know must have been pretty uncomfortable yeah it's Uh, not could be comfortable at all yeah interestingly you know his his first port of call his first action was to find a friendly farmer get some food get some uh, clothing and um, you know basically trying to assimilate into the location. Yeah, uh, lots of lots of like help from farmers in these stories. Th- there is, and I suppose this is some of the you know one of the reasons why I felt that he was indicative of the wider escape experience at this yeah. time because this dashing off from a column is genuinely really common at this time this is a predominant form of escape it's right which is so very different from what we imagine of the escapers in a tunnel sort yeah. of thing yeah, yeah. Um, it's literally just chancing your arm and hoping that no one shoots at you <laughs> um and so but also as you say you know getting help from farmers and getting that assistance from civilians is also a common theme throughout Certainly at this stage, but it does continue throughout the war, but it's certainly at this stage. Well, I suppose in some ways, where else were you going to get the help from? True, true. Initially, he planned to go due north from here and head up to the Belgian coast or the Dutch coast and try and find help there. And this is where um, he, he actually says that he was planning to go north in order to keep clear of uh, military traffic. Yeah. So, and th- this is why I think that there were so few guards is because there was still a war going on. <laughs> and I think <laughs> yeah. that's actually really <laughs> kind of forgotten. I mean, yeah, these you kind of think when you look at these reports individually and talk about the stories individually that they exist in their own little world or their own vacuum. But actually, no, you're right. There is there was a there was a war going along, uh, you know, everywhere around them. Yeah, exactly. And and certainly in this sort of part of Belgium. Yeah. At this time, you know, we are we are talking within two weeks of the in- initial invasion, and so the even if they had even if the front had progressed beyond the immediate vicinity that he was in, it was still you were still having to get supplies up to the front. You yeah. were still having to get reinforcements up as the lines progressed. You still had to get more and more up to the front, and so there would still have been a concentration of military traffic in this area. And so essentially, his first thought upon escape was to get the heck out of the vicinity i don't blame him yeah i mean it it seems like a really good idea (laughs) Uh, however instead of going due north he actually went slightly uh, he went northwest instead and sort of made towards um i think he was trying to head towards sort of northern france that uh, the Belgian coast next to france Uh, so not far from dunkirk actually okay um Although Fr- uh, Dunkirk is in northern France, but sort of that stretch of the coast, yeah, uh, he seems to have been making for, um, heading towards Ghent, and as you say, you know, obtaining milk from farmers as he went along, which must have been unpasteurized. I would assume so. Yeah. Not good for your constitution. <laughs> um, and yes, it, and 
you know, having been captured maybe a couple of days by this point, he he makes an interesting comment, which I I thought you'd be interested in, Dave, which is, uh, by this point, having grown a considerable beard, he thought it was protection as long as he looked like a peasant. Is that because I've got a peasant farmer's beard? Yes, you have a very (laughs) strong peasant farmer's beard. Um, Quite quite right. (laughs) And nothing wrong with it either. No, this is actually, it, it did actually interest me, just because it was in complete contrast to a couple of the stories that we've already talked about. And, Correct, and, yeah. and I believe, you know, I'm sure it sort of goes to your point, which you've said previously, of if you're going to live that life, you have to look like you live that life. Yeah. Which meant if you were in the higher societies, you were completely clean shaven mm-hmm. and well taken care of. But I guess if you were a farmer, you could have um, have a beard and look a bit more disheveled and scraggly. And bit of mud. He sort of used that to his advantage, by sounds of it. Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, he he certainly seems to have done. And you know, by by travelling in this manner, he seems to have covered a fair amount of distance. Uh, in actual fact, eventually, you know, getting back to his original tank. I love that fact. It's amazing. Like, I mean, it's like a homing pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go back to my tank. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. The fact that he found his way back to the tank, I almost wish that he was able to just push it back over and then carry on again. But that's sadly not quite. Well. Sadly not. Although he did search the tank for some kit yep. just to kind of get some supplies that must have still been in there. I mean, yeah, why yeah. not? I can't, you know, um, I can't imagine he had taken everything with him. But I actually looked up how far he had covered and he had travelled 100 kilometres back. So 100 kilometres away and then 100 kilometres back on foot to get back to his tank. So basically, to stand still, he has travelled 200 kilometres and grown a beard. Um, which is you know, a very successful week, I suppose. Yeah. Because when he crashed the tank, it says earlier that he buried a lot of his own... Um, um, everything he had on him, didn't he? So I assume whilst he was back at the tank, he potentially tried to look for the things he'd buried as well. Yeah, I assume so. Maybe a stash of cigarettes, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't specify, unfortunately, but no. he does say that he does look for uh, his kit to get it back. Um, but he didn't want to spend too much time there. But in, interestingly, he did he did comment that in villages, any stranger. Uh, was noticed because in small communities like that, all the inhabitants knew each other. Now, this actually tallies with, um, although this is a very different type of escape, this tallies with the comments made by the likes of Philpott and Williams, whereby they both said individually that they felt more comfortable in crowds. Yeah. Whereas this guy's saying the same thing, but the opposite way, whereby he's saying, actually, I stood out enormously in these tiny little villages and communities yeah. in rural Belgium because I'm clearly not from there yeah, because they all know each other. Yeah, everybody knows. It. It's it's the same today when you visit a small town or, or anything like that. People know you're a tourist or, or not from around that area. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, immediately. Yeah, no, absolutely. And not long after, he kind of left his tank there was there was what i thought was quite an amusing episode actually whereby and again i keep saying it but it's these little episodes and details that make these interesting and yeah. amusing you know why why bother commenting on a beard you know <laughs> but but he does yeah he clearly felt that was a that was an important detail that they did yeah, go yeah. in this so yeah he talks about how when he got to uh, a place near flobeck i'm thinking that is called um, we'll run with Flowback. Let's go with Flowback. It, it looks like a Flowback. Yeah. It's a good, good place. Uh, so he actually gets stopped and interrogated by a German Lance Corporal uh, in, in and around Flowback, and who starts asking him questions about where he's from. You know, he's trying to fob him off, trying to basically uh, 
blag his way through this because he hasn't got any papers on no. him. He hasn't got any ID. Uh, he's trying to pretend he's a local Belgian so that the German doesn't get suspicious of him and lets him go. And he basically makes up a whole bunch of lies. Um, and <laughs> yes, uh, to, you know, so this is just outside Flobeck. Of course, the German's not from around here, so he's you know. Well, like you say, they've not they've not long been there. No, exactly. I mean, we are talking about very early days in the yeah. war here. Not long be there, doesn't know the vicinity, doesn't know the area or the places around the area. And so he claims that he's from from this place, Flobeck. Tries to tell him that it's a very small village, doesn't doesn't have a town hall, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so the Lance Corporal becomes suspicious and summons a native, you know, someone from Belgium. Yeah. Uh, someone actually from Belgium, <laughs> I should say, <laughs> um, to act as an interpreter and kind of double check that this person isn't... Uh, making this up yeah and lo and behold <laughs> would you believe it flobeck is actually a fairly large kind of town and does have important t- civic buildings like town halls <laughs> which immediately got him captured um however uh, although he was handed over immediately he all he also instantly escaped through a cafe what did he do? Just leg it straight off for a cafe? As far as I can tell, yes. <laughs> Basically, he just sprinted through a cafe and got out the other side. That's amazing. So he was. So although he had tried to blag his way through this and failed spectacularly, he also just again chanced his arm, legged it, yeah, and and got away again. That's amazing. Um, so that's the first of his arrests. <laughs> um, which the way I, you say the first uh, makes me suspicious of. Um, or, or at least brushes with the law, right. shall we say, or or the law as it was, yeah. um, the occupying forces. Um, so yes, again on the on the twenty third of May, which is only five days after he was captured, actually. So um, he's covered. He's done a lot quickly. Done a lot of uh, distance in a very short space of time. But again, he says that he was stopped three times by German soldiers. But um, he persisted with his story in French, and in each case, this time, they let him go. So clearly, these people were not familiar with the uh, civic layout of Flobeck either. No. Um, which I think reflects on them. Really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, who doesn't want to go to Flobeck? Precisely. Maybe we should do a road trip there. <laughs> so yeah, he, ke- he kept travelling through Belgium, heading towards northern France, and actually made it into northern France, getting as far as Lille. And again, there's a reminder that the war is still ongoing, where he talks about he ran into a local battle between the French and Germans. Yeah. I mean, this this is a live front yeah. that we're talking about. You know, it's not like some of the later escapes where, yes, sure, they're in occupied Europe, but there's no actual fighting taking place. You're just kind of, I say just, you're just trying to evade capture by the Gestapo. <laughs> yeah, easy. Uh, I know, who hasn't? Uh, we've all been there, you know, just trying to run away from the dastardly Gestapo. But but in, in all seriousness, you know, a, a, a stray shell or stray bullet from the front yeah. is, a, is a real risk. Yeah, yeah definitely, he, definitely. He is walking through live battlefields yeah. as he's trying to escape back to the United Kingdom. And so having got to Lille, he managed to, he, he describes it as found a bicycle. <laughs> I suspect Captain A.D. Taylor may have been a touch light fingered here. Yeah. Um, and uh, lifted a bicycle, <laughs> what might be more accurate. Um, and was immediately stopped by an officer. Um, <laughs> because because they, they saw him stealing a bicycle. Quite possibly. Um, but he managed to proceed with his bicycle um, by telling them that he was a Belgian soldier, was a released prisoner, and uh, yeah, he carried on by bicycle for uh, a while yet. Now we've discussed about discussed before about the merits of traveling on foot versus traveling by train. Yeah, and as as you said, 
earlier uh, in this episode uh if you're going to travel as a businessman you have to look like a businessman yeah. and uh look respectable and all the paraphernalia that comes with that equal if you're traveling by foot you can get away with looking like a farmer wearing a beard all this sort of stuff bicycles sort of somewhere in between hmm. in that you don't necessarily need to look respectable and it is faster than traveling on foot yeah. and you can cover greater distances um but not as fast as a train and you're still susceptible to some uh, barriers, paper yeah, yeah. checks as and when. And they're not always the easiest thing to take off-road either. No, there wasn't a lot of rubber no. uh, around <laughs> uh, during the war. Um, and so the wheels were famously not very comfortable, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, you know, you you it, it was not dis- not wholly dissimilar to riding a bike down a railway line. Uh, you get where you want to go, but you feel every bump along the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah, so he he, but I mean he he had um found a bicycle, and uh, had made his way uh south as far as I can tell, uh, from his report, uh, getting as far as Grand Pont. Let's go with that. Which I always thought just meant big bridge. Yeah, it's, it sounds set up. Grand, yeah. And Pong, Pong is definitely bridge. Yeah. So Grand Pong is a big bridge where he was again arrested. So this is now his fifth brush with the Germans, <laughs> not including his original capture. This is now, since his initial escape, his fifth brush with the Germans. Um, and he was taken, taken off to Abbeville, I'm going to go with. Yeah, that seems. And spent the night in a cell. Um, so again, he's he's making his way, but he's kind of hitting barriers every step of the <laughs> way. Um, he's sort of, I, I feel like you know he's stumbling his way through yeah. this escape. He's not kind of it's not a smooth ride here. He seems like complete opposite in luck to to Whitney Strait, who we've spoken about before, who just went and did whatever he did, and everything kind of went his way. Yeah, he just kind of winged it, and they yeah. they're both kind of blagging this. They're both winging it as they go along, but he kind of. But like, Captain you know, Dale is having a bit more of a difficult time. Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas, as as you say, Whitney Strait just kind of flew through it. You know, it's just a uh, doddle. Yeah. Um, you know, the, this escape lark is easy. Um, it is evidently not. Um, while while he's been interrogated, uh, having been arrested and and interrogated, uh, there was an interesting comment he made in his report, um, whereby he says that he was brought before an officer to whom he gave his name and rank and explained that he was in civilian clothes because he wanted to escape. So this is quite quite important actually, because in essence, if you were in civilian clothes but were a foreign belligerent you are deemed a spy and therefore right. eligible to be shot. Oh, God. Um, so you essentially had to prove that you were actually a soldier. Right. Or a, a member of one of the armed forces. Yeah. And therefore a prisoner of war. You right. are not a spy, not operating behind enemy lines. See, that explains, because I did wonder when I read that why he would do that, because yeah. it seems it seems against what he would want. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, you, if, if you've been arrested for a second time and you declare that you're planning to escape, you're kind of giving them a heads up on your cards. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, you know, you're laying them all on the table and yeah. a little bit. It's like, oh, I might try and get away here. <laughs> um, not, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, but in actual fact... <laughs> Just a heads up, I've escaped before. Yes, I have done this before and I will probably try again. Um, however, because he... Uh, because there was a very real danger that he might be interpreted as a spy, 
uh, he basically had to declare that the reason he was in civilian clothing is in order to avoid being shot. God. Which seems probably the lesser of two evils. Yeah. I, um, yeah. On balance, you know. Sure, you're giving your guards a bit of a heads up that you're planning to get away again, but equally on the flip side, you're probably convincing them not to shoot you. I would always opt for not being shot. I would too. Yeah. So I, f- I feel like Taylor might have been onto something here. I also quite enjoyed the detail where the German officer didn't believe that his name was Taylor because yeah. it was such a common name. But he's not lying. His name is Taylor, but it's just I, I, I don't believe you. This yeah. is a common name. Um, and so once again, yeah, he's taken prisoner. He is escorted off the premises, and once again, he likes it. Um, he hasn't got the most sophisticated style of escape here. No, but it seems to work for him. It does, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he basically sprints off. Um, it's almost like, look over there. <laughs> yeah, ex- <Run> ex- <laughs> exactly. And so he, he um, ma- makes a, a beeline for the uh, coast again, which having kind of gone inland, from what I can tell, he seems to be heading back to the coast. Around this time, the Dunkirk evacuation is... A live operation so right. it kind of makes sense for him to head to the coast yeah. i suppose uh you know dunkirk evacuation took place from around about the 27th of may 1940 until the 4th of june and so you know he is very much in northern france not a million miles away from dunkirk as this is taking place yeah. so he does kind of head towards the coast and i assume in the hope of you know getting getting a piece of the action yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> heading back to the uk that way yeah, he, he makes his way to the coast and ends up in what, again, I assume is pronounced Letuke, and ends up chatting, this is another great detail, he ends up chatting to the local golf professional. Um, Grant. Grant, <laughs> yes, not sure if that's a first name, surname, or... I don't know, but it's just casually slipped in there. He came across Grant, the golf professional. Yes, uh, who... Um, and again, gave him several things useful for his proposed trip across the channel, including food, fair enough, strong yep. gloves, okay, I see what you're getting there, and a bottle of brandy, in no way stereotyping the sailor. No, but I think we can both agree that it's pretty essential. Absolutely <laughs> essential, because what you want is not, not sails or oars or anything like that, you need a bottle of brandy for this escape. And, and so fair enough um, but you know um, Grant did suggest going to the sailing club which seems to be one of the more su- sensible suggestions and helpful tips he seems yeah. to have given uh, you know if you're looking for a boat or a ship to sail a sailing club would be a really good place to it's, head to it's a pretty good place to start I thought so so he heads over to the sailing club manages to find one that's suitable and spends the day fixing up sails and oars etc of a rowing boat that he'd found found again he, yes again in, found in, in, in the same <laughs> way he found the bicycle <laughs> Yes, um, Lightfingers Taylor strikes again. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, at midnight, he sails out into the estuary uh, using the boat that he had found yeah. um, and heads out into the channel, uh, which, you know, can we just take a moment? That's actually quite a ballsy move. Yeah, like. <laughs> I mean, I would not like to, d- to propose that as a move for myself because... Yeah. It takes a lot of effort to just cross the channel. So he, I mean, the the region he's in is about sixty five miles, uh, sixty five kilometers along the coast from Calais. Mm. So we are talking about just across the channel from the Kent coast. Yeah, you know that sort of stretch al- yeah, along yeah. from Dover, Hastings, etc. Yeah. So it's not the longest of crossings, but at the same time, it's still mm. the channel, and he's in a rowing boat. Yeah. 
<laughs> not, yeah. not sure I, you know. It wouldn't be my first choice. Wouldn't be my first choice either. But, uh, but again, it probably wasn't his first choice either. <laughs> no, no. But then I think by this point, he probably didn't think he would get away with being arrested the sixth time. Yeah. And so as he made his way out into the channel, um, he, he saw what he describes as a strange boat in the distance gradually coming near him, which basically sounds like the Marie Celeste to me. Yeah. Uh, and so he lies down in the bottom of the boat, which is foolproof. Yeah, it's uh, just duck. Yeah, but f- flawless, <laughs> flawless logic here. But it, as it turned out, he, he you know he hears a voice calling out in a, in in English. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that this is a boat essentially going along the coast trying to find stray British soldiers. So we're talking about less than a week after Dunkirk here. Yeah. And essentially, although the Dunkirk evacuation has taken place by this point. Uh, they are still trying to get any stray uh, servicemen that they can find to yeah. bring back. They, you know, they're trying to find people exactly in, in Taylor's position. Yes, exactly. You know, people who are in this position, as you say. And because we're talking about early July, you know, Dunkirk has only just taken place yeah. less than a week prior to him being picked up. And they, they of course, pick him up and take him back to Dover. Um, can, I, can I just say, I, I really particularly love in the report... The spelling of what he says the person calls out. He says, um, lying down in the bottom of the boat and heard voice call out, Hello! Spelled H-U-L-L-O, <laughs> which is the very typical English way of... Uh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's all, uh, you almost half expect a cooey. Yeah. <laughs> Hello! Hello! Who are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, well, I mean, in some ways you're right. It, it, it could well have just been a couple of people in a little boat. Yeah. Because that is that is by you know that is what Dunkirk is famous for. Yeah, is the little boats that kind of went over and brought them back. I, I just like it because it's very much the Kent accent, which is where I'm from. Well, of course, yes. <laughs> and so yeah, he made his way back. But because we were talking about literally days after Dunkirk, so there weren't uh, a lot of the servicemen had either just been captured or just ev- evacuated back to the UK. That is why Taylor is so early. Uh, in the escape process, as we say, literally the fourth person who escaped through the entirety of the war, because you know he is so soon after anything happened, um, and so yeah, he the, uh, he he actually went on to have quite an interesting career after his escape, right? Because of course he made it back and was put back into service. Because, yeah. you know at this stage there's still five years of the war and only just started the war exactly and so uh, he actually went back uh, continued to serve with the hussars and he ended up fighting in market garden which is the invasion of uh, the netherlands right when the allied forces uh, came back so it's just after d-day uh, montgomery uh, general montgomery came up with market garden that wasn't a hugely successful operation but he and uh, Captain Taylor ended up fighting uh, with his regiment in Eindhoven in '44, and actually fought with the 101st U.S. Airborne, oh. uh, which is the Band of Brothers yeah. uh, regiment yeah. uh, that features in that epic, epic miniseries. Uh, All-time wait, favorite. So wait a minute, are you are you a fan? I of, don't mind um, it. It's not yeah. bad. I've seen worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just for the record, Dave is a massive fan <laughs> of Band of Brothers. Yeah, I might have watched it once or. Eight times, yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, he actually, as I say, ends up uh, serving in 1912 in 44 uh, with 101st and even after the war continued to serve with the Hussars and went on to become regimental colonel, uh, which is basically commanding officer of the regiment. Yeah, it's uh, a, a big position. Absolutely, from 1964 to 1970. So uh, he actually went on to have quite an interesting career afterwards, but uh, yeah, he, he had a pretty interesting escape and... <laughs> A, a little footnote in the escape history, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. Lots of just legging it. Yes, which, which yeah. actually I love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he he blags it, but he doesn't blag it with quite the finesse of Whitney Strait. No, uh, but who who does? <laughs> okay. Um, well, thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, we could be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, any basically any of your favorite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. Um, if you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.